Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. We pride ourselves on documenting important events in aerospace and defense. And tomorrow, the 2nd of December, 2022, is a day that will be remembered as a significant milestone in aviation history. That's when the United States Air Force and the Northrop Grumman Corporation will unveil the new B-21 stealth bomber, which is named the Raider in honor of the Doolittle Raiders of World War II. The rollout is significant in its own right, but the bomber marks another major milestone as it is regarded as the first sixth-generation aircraft in existence. Here to speak about the B-21 is a guest who is eminently qualified to discuss the topic, and that is retired Major General Doug Rayburg. General Rayburg is an honor graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and holds master's degrees from the University of Southern California and the National War College. He is a command pilot with more than 4,700 flying hours, primarily in the FB-111, the B-1, and the B-2 bombers. General Rayburg is a combat veteran with 35 combat missions in the B-1 bomber, and holds a world's record for the fastest non-stop flight around the globe. For this historical achievement, he and his team received the 1995 McKay Trophy for the U.S. Air Force Most Meritorious Flight of the Year Award. General Rayburg commanded the United States' only B-2 stealth bomber wing, which is known to have spearheaded the air campaign for Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003. His general officer assignments include Director of Air and Space Operations for the Air Combat Command. Additionally, he has extensive experience in international military affairs, orchestrating regional operations as the Deputy Director of Operations for the U.S. Central Command. We are excited for the rollout of the B-21 tomorrow. We hope this discussion adds some context to the significance of the event. Let's roll the music. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today I am very excited to have as a guest, retired Major General Doug Rayburg, who was a United States Air Force General Officer and an FB-111 Aardvark pilot, a B-1 pilot, and a B-2 Stealth Bomber pilot. So I've been looking forward to having the opportunity to speak with somebody that is as distinguished as a general for a long time. Uh, so General uh, Rayburg, thank you so much for joining me today. Joe T, boy, what a pleasure. Let's go bold. Yeah, absolutely, sir. Let's go bold. Exactly. Well, so as I do with all of my guests, I start by asking, what was your motivation to serve and what made you pick the particular branch that you did? Well, I come from a, a family military experience, of course. Uh, my grandfather was in the Army, uh, both in World War I, World War II, retired at the illustrious rank of captain. Uh, my father actually served in the Navy in World War II. He was a radio gunman in uh, TBF Avengers uh, for your audience. That's the, uh, the fighter looking aircraft that used to drop the torpedoes against ships. Uh, and then uh, the machine gunner, of course, was both protection as well as, uh, you know, just 
firepower from air. Uh, I would say my father was probably the one that excited me the most about aviation. I loved airplanes since I was 10 years old and grew up with uh, aviation ever since. Honestly, my father is actually space. And so I grew up in a space family as well. And so I have both disciplines. Why the Air Force? Uh, I hail from San Diego, okay. love the Marine Corps, uh, love the Navy. But uh, what I really wanted to do was go to the Air Force Academy and uh, then follow on to operational flying. Right on. And so as you started in, in your Air Force career, uh, obviously there's lots of different um Lots of different jobs in the Air Force. Certainly, uh, you know, it's clear that you wanted to be a pilot, uh, but you could have gone fighters. You could have gone, you know, uh, the transport air mobility side. Um, how did you get into the bomber stream? <laughs> well, probably the most awkward way. Uh, when uh, I finished pilot training, my beautiful bride now, 43 years, uh, uh, we decided that we would go to a more, let's say, docile assignment and go to the KC-135A models, uh, tankers. And uh, of course, being a Californian, I thought, oh, let's go to California. And that's what we did for the first uh, three to four years. It was there that uh, I, I got the call saying, what about coming to the FB-111, which is for your, again, for your audience, that's both a fighter bomber variant of the swing wing uh, 111 aircraft. And so it does both nuclear as well as conventional. The first thing I did was kind of look askance and wonder why me, especially a tanker pilot. But that was uh, the joy of being in strategic air command at the time because they would cross flow. Uh, I won't go and labor how I derived at that decision, but let's just say I, I one time I ever called a lifeline on my father and said, help me out here. And it was a good decision to go to the FB-111. I love it. I love it. So, so you actually did fly the KC-135. And then transitioned over. In fact, that was really the uh, the leading edge of the Cold War era for us in the uh, late seventies, early eighties. Mm -hmm. So pulled a lot of nuclear alert in the KC one thirty five uh, tanker and saw firsthand the the intricacy and the discipline that it required for our our nuclear architect for the United States. Right. And it's actually a wonderful experience that you had with the KC-135 that leads you over to the bomber stream. Um, tell me about flying the FB-111. <laughs> well, if, if your audience would look at, uh, could see me on video, they would say he has no hair. We always joked that uh, the, the FB-111 was designed to be low-level, high-speed, penetrating bomber, uh, first and foremost. And so we would generally fly at uh, upwards of 600 uh, knots, uh, let's call it 700 miles an hour, uh, to a target at between two to 400 feet. So you really became very disciplined in, in flying at night and during the day uh, in all terrain. And it was the aircraft that required the most concentration uh, physically to be able to fly because once you came above 400 feet, of course, now you had to learn fighter tactics and how to evade and escape uh, threats from the air as well as in the ground. Right. And in those days, I assume it was um, to use the, the simple term dumb bombs, but I, su I suspect not precision munitions at the time. That's correct. It was uh, conventional dumb bombs when we actually uh, used them. We were not the classic F-111 that was predominantly devoted to the conventional. We were, we were on alert uh, with nuclear weapons. Right. 
Right. How did you feel about that job? You know, the gravity on you, knowing that you could be called upon to deliver a nuclear weapon. Of course, it's your job. You, you know, you do what you're told, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the Air Force. But, um, but uh, from a personal perspective, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts. Yeah, personally, I, what, I, what I learned was uh, this is where I truly, first of all, did not have to grasp the concept, but rather uh, this was where leadership was going to come into play in terms of the discipline required to actually execute a nuclear mission on behalf of our president of the United States. Uh, that's a tough concept to grasp for, for others, and that's why the Air Force uh, and uh, it was Strategic Air Command at the time. In fact, Air Force Global Strike Command today really expects uh, those that are involved clearly understand what the mission is and accept the uh, the risks that come with uh, deploying nuclear weapons. Right, right. Uh, did you see uh, combat in the FB-111? No, I did not. In fact, uh, the timing uh, was right around what they called the Operation El Dorado Canyon, the... Uh, I remember. Operations in Libya, right? And uh, uh, the only combat we saw at that point was uh, everybody equated our aircraft to what was actually being flown out of uh, England, and uh, for those raids uh, during the uh, general or President Reagan's era, right, right. But of course, those were the conventionally armed, uh, right, right, right. Uh, okay, so talk to me about the, I guess, the transition over from the FB one eleven Ardvark over to the B one. Uh, the bone, uh, the lancer. <laughs> the, I would say uh, for somebody who really wants to understand aviation, we always equated when you learned how to fly the T-38 uh, jet trainer, uh, supersonic jet trainer, that was a very nimble aircraft. Uh, imagine trying to do two rolls in less than a second. That would spin your head. That was a very maneuverable aircraft. When it came to the FB-111, it was more of a, of a heavy fighter, and it is considered a heavy fighter at the time. Uh, of course, your audience, some of those folks would know that it was the TFX program of yore, that it was going to be both Air Force as well as Navy. And of course, predominantly, it ended on the Air Force side, both nuclear conventional. And as you alluded to, the Libyan raid was precision guided munitions. That was probably the, the forerunner for what we see today in, in actual combat. Then the transition to the B-1 bomber was different because this was what I called transitioning from blobology on radar, uh, the old classic beep, beep swing of the, uh, of the pencil beam, to now the first time you actually see an electronically scanned array radar picture, right. rudimentary as it was. And flying the aircraft itself was phenomenal because it honestly cruised as fast as an FB-111. It was just a little bit heavier on the stick as well as the aircraft. Let's face it, it's a pretty heavy bomber. <laughs> well, you know, I, I love the fact that they're both swing wing, you know, how cool. <laughs> In fact, uh, it was interesting because the the funneling of B-52 and FB-111 crew members, and then there was a sprinkle from the Tactical Air Command at the time. Uh, you could tell there was a different discipline in terms of doing train following uh, because you have to listen, believe it or not, you have an oral cue. You have a visual cue in the cockpit in terms of watching terrain tracing on a radar or on a scope. And at the same time, literally feeling the aircraft actually respond by itself automatically, if you want to call it that, uh, without assist, except for the power of the throttles. Uh, the same with the B-1 bomber. 
And so the aircraft would navigate itself, uh, avoid terrain, and generally fly at 400 feet or above. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful beautiful aircraft. I've had the opportunity to see it a number of times, and uh, yeah, it just uh, looks like a big slick fighter, but you know, strategic bomber. I think, and and that's the that's the wonderful thing that the United States Air Force brings to the Allied fight is that there is no other ally that operates strategic bombers. It is the U.S. Air Force. And so it's wonderful to have that capability. Um, and, you know, it's, it's proven itself time and time again. Um, if you don't mind, if I, I step in on this, point, I think you're, this is where I really learned the difference between a bomber, big bomber versus the fighter bomber transition. And that is speed, range, and flexibility of the mission. Honestly, my wake up call was the first time I actually dropped nearly 56 uh, 500 pound conventional bombs in a row at night 400 feet and i just could not believe how fast they all came out of the bomb base the three bomb bays that we had and how precise you could lay down a stick of bombs like that and really felt the the ferocity of the firepower of that aircraft in that mission besides just doing the nuclear mission as we did in the FB-111 predominantly. Right, and as we've seen um, now more recently over Iraq and Afghanistan, the B-1 now has a targeting pod and with precision munitions and the capacity that it has, my God, one aircraft, if you were in a permissive environment, one aircraft, you know, you've got a lot of legs. So, you know, you've got the endurance time on station and you've got a lot of capacity. Um, I think that's just a wonderful evolution of the capability of strategic bombers. Well, it's interesting because as a, a deputy air component commander, as a two-star, I was not only running the air war on behalf of the three-star air component commander, I was actually flying combat missions in the B-1 bomber. For half the time I was in the desert, uh, I saw just the, what I'll call the slick B-1, and then we brought on the sniper uh, advanced targeting pod put that together in theater operations, but my experience was also in long range strike. So I had done it back in the mid nineties, we had taken the B-1 bomber around the world, setting a world record, dropping bombs in two hemispheres, three countries uh, to demonstrate what we referred to as the ultimate global power mission. Uh, Joe T, all I can say is that uh, our audience was really at the time, Russia and China. And they got the message. Yeah. And to this day, um, the Global Strike Command is continuing to demonstrate capabilities like that. But I noted in your biography that you won an award. You, you and I believe your crew, uh, correct me where I might be wrong. but It was a, it was a two, two ship formation. So all eight crew members of the, the two B1s uh, received the McKay Trophy, which actually is now in the Smithsonian Institute. Very privileged because if you look at the early days of aviation, uh, one of the first awardees was Hap Arnold, the father of, of the modern day Air Force after World War II or through World War II. And Ira Aker, Jimmy Doolittle, the names that just kind of come off your, your tongue if you're an aviation enthusiast. 
I recognize the names and I have to congratulate you and, and your, your teammates for that wonderful achievement. Um, uh, such a cool experience. And I, you know, I'd even love to have just a dedicated discussion about that because it just sounds so cool to, you know, setting a, a world distance record and, and doing what you did there. Um, uh, so, so cool. And now you mentioned General Doolittle and, you know, we will get to that because there, there is a connection here uh, in this chat. Um, while we're on the subject of the B-1, is there anything else that kind of stands out to you during your time flying the B-1 and how perhaps it set you up to your next assignment or, or the next platform you were going to fly? I would say there's a confidence factor and there's a limitation factor. Uh, the confidence is, is that the aircraft can actually strike any target anywhere in the globe. And that is important because, as we demonstrated, uh, over 21,800 miles of nonstop with refueling around the globe, that was 36 hours of, of around the, the world flight. But the confidence is, is that the one, the B-1 aircraft itself, like the B-2, like the B-52, was capable of taking off from the United States and striking a target as tasked by command authority. Uh, the limitation, obviously, those inside the cockpit. And that was one of the things that we worked very hard on in terms of what are the uh, circadian issues? What are the ability to, to really rotate crews and keep them confident in what they do? Because most targets, for example, in Iraq at the time, uh, in the B-1 as well as in the B-2, uh, you're striking the target about the 18-hour mark wow. in the mission. So you you really have to be on your game. And so the limitation, we kept extending how far we can take a single crew to flight and realized there is, there's a point about 36 hours is about as much as you want to do, 24 is optimal. Right. Right. Very, very interesting. And I just got to say, General, although purpose of this chat ultimately is to talk about a new bomber coming into the United States Air Force uh, fleet, um, I'm a proponent for keeping the strap bombers as many as we can. And <laughs> um, I kind of wish that we weren't retiring some of the B1s that we were, but serious decisions need to be made. I think that's a key point uh, that we need to talk about. Because on a serious note, we know that bombers have really played a key role in almost nearly every subsequent conflict from the day we took down Saddam Hussein and his army in 1991 uh, to Kosovo and Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, uh, you know, not necessarily chronological, but uh, the point is that we've we've run that investment in those aircrafts too thin for too long. And you know that the B-1 is, is tired. It's worn out. We haven't recapitalized it as, as an aircraft. Put in context, in the Cold War era, including the FB-111, you had 411 bomber aircraft. Wow. Now, today, you only have 141. And we know that that's a, that's a razor thin margin if you have to hold a lot of targets at risk based on adversaries around the globe, and particularly with China. Yeah, the problem set is huge. Uh, you know, when we consider peer adversaries and the pacing threat, um, we're looking at China, obviously, as, as a big one. Uh, we all recognize that Russia is an adversary. Um, and so, yeah, it, with 140 some odd, as you mentioned there, um, that can get pretty thin pretty quick. 
Well, and think about the fact that you only have 20 stealth aircraft in the B-2 world. Uh, we're down to about 45 B-1s and, and we'll call it about 75, 76 B-52 uh, aging aircraft. Right. Uh, I hate to say to your audience, but they're as old as me. And it, there, there's value in the aircraft. I'm not uh, trying to take away from that, but rather emphasize the message that if we are truly going to take a pacing threat, which in my opinion, China is not pacing, it's actually the threat. Hmm. We have to be prepared to go in with stealth, persistent attack, uh, hold everything at risk and change the calculus of battle. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I, I, it, we do. I, I think that's the strategy that we must take. Um, and you mentioned the B-2, so that was a perfect segue. So after the B-1 bomber, you transitioned over to the B-2 Spirit, the United States Air Force one and only stealth strategic bomber. Um because I can't, I can't forget the F-117, but uh, it's a different class. And, and even though it said F, it was always a bomber. Uh, so, Well, I, I will give, uh, I'll give kudos to the Air Force in terms of its culture of developing technologies that are way beyond leading edge. And uh, we'll talk about that later on, perhaps with the B-21. But the key is that uh, it's time to replace the B-2. Uh, it too has a certain shelf life. It too has its limitations. Uh, I wish we had bought all 130 back then uh, yeah. instead of, uh, you know, the congressional, uh, let's say, politics that uh, led us to uh, only uh, building actually 21. Of, co of course, one was a modified uh, first uh, article aircraft. Right. So uh, th the irony there is you crash one aircraft, uh, you've just lost 5% of the fleet. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The numbers add up fast, I guess, or count very quickly when you have a small fleet like that. Uh, tell me about flying the B-2. How was that in comparison to flying the B-1? Well, I have to back up. Okay. I have to go back up to the FB-111 because what's not on my resume is uh, actually I was called out of the FB-111 while still flying the aircraft to actually ops validate the advanced technology bomber in 1985. Oh, cool. So at the time we brought in our FB-111 crews to physically have one pilot and one navigator, a weapon systems officer actually flying the aircraft. As we know today, it's actually a two piloted aircraft. Right. When I left that evaluation in 1985, I'd never thought that I would come to the B-2. And then one day uh, got the call from my uh, commander and he said, what do you think about taking command of Whiteman Air Force Base and our nation's B-2 stealth bomber. I said, <laughs> that, that's a gut, let's get it, let's go. Yeah, right. Exactly. Let's, go, let's go bold, let's go <laughs> bring, fast. Bring and it I, on, let's go bold. <laughs> uh, what, I, what I would say, this is a prelude to what we're going to talk about. So, right. Joe T., this is important for, for you and for anybody who's listening. I was amazed in 1985 at the technology of the aircraft. What I was more amazed was the, how it was going to accomplish its mission and how the crews would change the complexion and the tactical and strategic capability of the aircraft. When I came to Whiteman, took command of the 509th bomb wing, the illustrious 509th, uh, I was floored at what I had experienced in 1985 to what I saw in 2002. Hmm. I was gobstopped because the, the pilots 
and the entire team, maintainers, uh, the people who connect in logistics and everything, that whole ecosystem was incredibly powerful and able to hold the entire uh, target base at risk. That was the challenge I had as the commander was I had a lot of taskings uh, that were on the shelf. It's just a matter of which ones go first, uh, depending upon who needs to be too. Right, right. Very interesting. Okay. And, and so now you got to tell me a little bit about Flygit just from a personal perspective, because um, because it, I suspect it's flying it a very different way than perhaps the B1. It is. Uh, let's admit, first of all, not a swing wing. It is right. a, it is a wing. <laughs> exactly. Right. And it, it is a, looks like to some people like a boomerang. Uh, it is incredible. The first time you sit in the, in the seat up front, doesn't matter right, left, you look out and you look to your left or you look to your right and you realize I'm sitting on a wing and I have nothing over my nose. And I don't know how much I have behind me other than a bomb bay. That was the first thing. The flying of the aircraft, the first time I flew it, all that technology just lit up. Uh, the ability to uh, hook to the stars and be able to navigate with precision capability, not necessarily with GPS. Now, let's face it, the aircraft was designed in the Cold War era, and it was also designed to do low level. Right. Uh, but we were not doing low level at the time. In fact, I took it out of the aircraft in, with concurrence of the, uh, the, the four stars. But... Flying the aircraft almost seemed like a cinch. Uh, it, it talked to you, it guided you, it was revolutionary. So in fact, my first takeoff lost an engine at about hundred feet off the ground. And my instructor pilot immediately said, oh no, we just lost an engine. I said, why should we panic? I said, the aircraft has just trimmed itself out. We've shut down, it's automatically shutting down and rerouting all electricity, hydraulics, uh, this aircraft is taking care of it for us, isn't it? <laughs> and he liked that. He smiled. And we, we of course, declared an emergency and went on to, uh, to bring her home safely. Um, right. Last point, hard to land. Ah, interesting. It, it's a hockey puck. Okay. So it's, uh, you need to bring the throttles back a lot earlier or you're going to float. And the same occurs when you're behind a tanker. Ah, interesting. Interesting. You know, those are the little nuggets of info that I love because as, as a person who is passionate about aviation, hearing somebody who's actually been in the cockpit and, and done that and the little nuances of flying aircraft and how different aircraft perform uh, is something I love to hear about. Um, talk to me about the, how do you compare the weapons capability of a B-2 versus like a B-1. And the reason why I ask that is, from my understanding, the capacity in the B-2 is quite significant, but it just doesn't look like it in terms of, you know, when you look at the size of a B-1, it looks like, okay, you know, yeah, I can, I can rationalize. There's this many bombs that would be in there. But a B-2 doesn't look as large, I guess, because you don't have that big fuselage. And, um, but it can still carry a formidable payload. Yes. In fact, uh, let's, and not the exact numbers, but let's just uh, say for conversation purposes, they, both aircraft are about 80 plus uh, 500 pound bombs. Uh, both obviously do precision guided uh, munitions of varying size from 2000 uh, to 500. The B2 is a little different because it actually takes it up to uh, 5,000 pound bombs. And of course we know the, uh, 
the mother of all bombs, uh, the 30,000 pound plus uh, Moab. Right. Uh, what's the difference in terms of capability? The B1, it's going from Blobology, FB111, to the B1, which had a, a good radar, but not as exquisite uh, with the B2. So I would say this, that's why it was a challenge to actually learn how to execute the B-2, not how to fly it, because it it's a year long to where you're learning how to essentially play three-dimensional chess. What was my last move? What did I tell the airplane? What is the airplane telling me now? And in the end, the ability to look at a target exquisitely is much more refined in the B-2. I can only imagine what the B-21 will do. Hey folks, here's a message about our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Did you know that Cubic supports combat training by providing warfighters a common data model called SPEAR? And SPEAR stands for Simplified Planning, Execution, Analysis, and Reconstruction. SPEAR was envisioned, designed, and fielded by current and former warfighters. The software suite ingests data from multiple domains like air, land, sea, space, and cyber, and all environments like live, virtual, and constructive, regardless of how that data is captured, and it translates it into a common model. SPEAR is used to support mission planning, execution, and debrief, and it enables subjective data labeling and categorization throughout the mission cycle the result of which is an enriched data file which can be used for learning management, readiness assessments, artificial intelligence, and machine learning advancement. The revolutionary SPEAR software allows warfighters to visualize operations throughout the mission training cycle or during combat operations, and that enables forces to understand multi-domain operations like never before. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, the SPEAR common data model enables real change. To learn more about it, please visit cubic.com. Now, let's get back to our chat. Again, another perfect segue, General. So here we are on the eve of the B-21 rollout at Plant 42 at Palmdale, uh, the Northrop Grumman plant. And you actually worked for Northrop Grumman uh, after your military service. Um, did you have any connection to the B-21 program while you were at Northrop? I would say just a very thin side of it all because I was working other programs when I was stateside. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a real privilege to work with Northrop Grumman uh, because I had uh, flown, commanded, or executed almost their entire product line, air, That's awesome. space, and cyber wow. uh, in terms of uh, wartime efforts and all the products that, that Northrop Grumman built. Uh, it was clear that, uh, that the B-21 program was going to be on cost on schedule and it better be on performance because they were expected to deliver. And I'm absolutely impressed with the rapid capability office of the United States Air Force and the leadership to, uh, to let's say, keep that acquisition on track. But more importantly, it's the engineers, it's the young ones uh, who bring this aircraft to life. And, and then we'll see what happens tomorrow when she rolls out. Yeah, it's so exciting because this, uh, 
I believe it's about seven years since contract award to where we are today. And uh, to me, that's quite remarkable. Um, now, I hope that testing will, will go smoothly. Uh, and from everything that I've read about the program, you know, uh, it's got a digital twin. It had digital engineering. There will be uh, digital testing. And it, it's obviously the digital twin has undergone testing. So I think all of those things will hopefully bode very well for the program. Um, and the fact that the prototype is a production representative design, uh, which I think is a really, really good idea. Um, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Well, let's start with what makes it different. Sure. And first of all, it's probably a little bit smaller. I'm expecting to see that uh, tomorrow. But it, uh, if you look at the back side of the uh, of the B21, at least the silhouettes we've seen so far, uh, it's less of the sawtooth and just more of a, a tail uh, part of the aircraft. Right. Uh, I, I've got to give credit to our Dean of Mitchell Institute, uh, our think tank here at the Air and Space Force Association, because they really are, are spot on when they say that the B21 is a product of the information age. Uh, that's a very important part because what the B21 will do without foreknowledge it's going to harness the sensors, the processing power to actually have, uh, we'll call it the understanding of the battle space, both in real time. And more importantly, and the one thing that was a challenge with the B2 is to be able to share it, to take uh, and give. That's very important in, in a new information age era, not just open system architecture. Uh, that's important, but that allows you to, to really work it. How? You just mentioned it. The, the digital twin is important because it's not just for designing the aircraft. I think a lot of people think of it as a computer-aided design. Uh, rather, it's, it's built around being able to test uh, another weapon system that's been digitally or digitized and see if it actually mates well with the aircraft before you even go into any actual physical testing of the aircraft. So rapid development is the name of the game. Yeah, and I believe it's the Air Force. It's either the Air Force or Northrop Grumman is calling the B-21, uh, which which will be named the Raider, uh, the B-21 as the first sixth generation aircraft, which I think, again, another point in, mm -hmm. in aviation history, which is, which is awesome. Um, does that mean anything to you? I, I would, I think I've given you a little hors d'oeuvre uh, in that uh, sixth generation has to, to be able to exploit every sensor, every sensor, a weapon, every sensor or an operator. It has to be able to coordinate with the combatant commanders in their battle space because having been at the combatant command level in real combat, uh, I expect another service's capability to be able to communicate and to be able to find, fix, and finish if necessary targets. Now, that's important. That's why when I was the commander of the B-2, people would always ask me, what is the mission of the B-2 here at Whiteman Air Force Base? It's to kick down doors and kill targets. Mm -hmm. And the B-21 is not only going to kick the door down, I am confident that it's actually going to go inside and stay there. And it is going to be a menace. Uh, it's going to, to really take the balance of capability in a new direction that command commanders are just going to begin to learn over time. I, I love that. I, I love that phrase. It's going to be a menace. 
<laughs> because, you know, for the adversaries, yeah, you know, uh, you've got a menace coming your way. Um, with your experience of the B-2, flying it, operating it, um, commanding the wing, what things did you see within the B-2? And, and it's interesting that the B-2 was built by Northrop Grumman. The B-21 will be built by Northrop Grumman. So, um, so hopefully there's that linkage of knowledge base and specialization that is carried on from one platform to the other. But from your experience in the B-2, what did you want to see in the B-21? What changes? Uh, first and foremost is uh, the ability of the aircraft to literally provide data to others, to communicate with others. And in some cases, analyze for others. So it's more important that it becomes the long-range sensor shooter, as our Mitchell Institute uh, think tank team will tell you. That's important. The B-2, again, was designed in the, in the nuclear era. So it was more designed around uh, single force mission, uh, communication with, let's say, command headquarters, regardless of which command it was at the time. And uh, that... That is one of the things that I always told audiences. It, it's like being Superman. Uh, you, you run into a phone booth, you want to transform, but the only thing you can do is pick up the telephone and tell everybody what you see outside. Uh, right. This is the transformation in the B-21. Uh, and Joe T, can I offer this too? It, and I really want to do a shout out to every single engineer, everyone who put their hands into development of this airplane. It is very important that all the revolutionary uh, manufacturing techniques, uh, materials, and so forth is really what creates what I think we'll call the sixth generation capability of tomorrow. Uh, you know, I, I keep harping back a T-38 to an FB-111 to a B-1 to a B-2 to a B-21. Uh, well, you can see it's a generational transformation. The key is does it match the strategy that our nation expects of the aircraft? That's key. Uh, it has to match strategy and this does it exquisitely. It'll be amazing to see. And, you know, you've kind of given me a little bit of insight as to what you expect to see when it's rolled out. Um, you know, you mentioned that you suspect that it'll be a little bit smaller. Um, are there any other kind of things that you'll be looking for when, when it rolls out? I'm sure there's going to be lots of things. Uh, first of all, I'm going to, I'm just going to enjoy the exuberance of, of the leadership and all the accomplishment to be able to get to tomorrow's rollout. That, that is wonderful. I'm going to have a different eye hmm. because I'm going to look at the aircraft and we will all see the same thing. I'm, let's face it. Right. But it's not what you see and what's inside the aircraft that will go unseen and unsaid. However, I do know this, whatever is occurring inside the aircraft itself is changing rapidly. So tomorrow's rollout aircraft, I just have that feeling it's gonna be a little different each and every day, but every time you see a, a B-21 fly over an air show of the future, or you see it on the ramp in a, a location, just know that it's probably a different B-21. Yeah, yeah, and and that that lent itself to what you mentioned about the open architecture aspect to it, and and um, uh, you know, uh, I guess the capabilities because what you're describing to me in in your example of comparing the B two and the B twenty one is 
yes, I guess the foundation is that it is a strategic bomber, but the B-21 sounds like it'll also be a node in the sky uh, because everything is going to be connected now. Um, you know, I think that's why, uh, you know, there's lots of reporting out there that, um, that it will have joint all domain command and control architecture, um, JADC2. And I think that's where the smiling faces comes into play because I, I know that the, I just have it in my heart of hearts that the global strike commander, the strategic command commander and all the combatant commanders who may be there tomorrow, I don't know if they'll be there. Just know that uh, this aircraft already fits into their plans. It's the challenge for them is uh, how far can it go? What can it do? Uh, because nobody's going to see it after it rolls out. I'll guarantee that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, awesome. So uh, when do you expect a uh, first flight? I think everyone, every, everyone is expecting it'll be uh, in 2023. Uh, do you project first, uh, first half, latter half? I, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. I would say I'd stick with the public announcement. The, that is important because uh, a rollout is one thing, but now really doing a, a ground shakedown of, of the aircraft, compare it to the digital models, Make sure that what is occurring on the ground meets what was done in design and what the uh, the digital. That's Northrop Grumman's challenge now, and I'm confident they'll actually uh, fix the bugs. But I was once told what's what's similar about all A model aircraft, the first variant. Uh, well, they all had a good A model, and they all had they all had problems, and they right. all got fixed. Right, uh, and trust me, there will be problems. But that, that may or may not be seen. But I think that's important for, for everybody to know that uh, there's an entire team focused on making sure those are, that risk is mitigated. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think the Air Force has said, and I don't believe you know, maybe you do know, but, uh, 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 and even if you could tell me, perhaps you won't, but uh, what, <laughs> what do you, if you were a betting man, would you say it's got four engines or two? Well, I'm just going to go on my, my, my B2 experience, four engines, uh, because I'm thinking in terms of uh, four generators, uh, four of everything is very important, especially for redundancy of systems, of systems. That's very, very important, too, because let's face it, you'll, you'll want backup to the backup to the backup. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think that that makes sense. And plus, you got to, even if even if the actual platform is a bit smaller, you still got to lift a lot of weight. So yeah, you, know, you do. Yeah. Uh, the the other question I've got for you is, um, what have you heard in, you know, the discourse about the B-21? Uh, what have you heard out there, aside from the excitement uh, that's coming with the rollout? What have you heard about the aircraft in terms of the risk to getting to where we need with the numbers? Because if we look back and we take the example of the B-2 that you mentioned, and then if we kind of go into the fighter realm, we look at the, what happened to the F-22. Um, they all had large numbers planned, but they were all cut back. And hopefully that doesn't happen with the B-21, but um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, I would say 100 is not enough. 200 may not be enough, but the, that's easy to talk random numbers. Uh, what I would say is understand that we've had a declining Air Force aircraft inventory, not only just in bombers, but also in fighters. Uh, 
and the Air Force has to modernize rapidly. So my, my key point there is that the B-21 is arriving at the right time to somewhat correct that, that diminishing returns from an old tired force that needs to be recapitalized and modernized rapidly uh, for our nation. And we need, right. to, we need sufficient quantities. Again, just go back to what we said earlier in the program. If you lose an aircraft, what percentage do you lose of the inventory? And that's very, very costly in overall planning efforts, especially one who's been in combat with aircraft, done an air war. You don't want to lose anyone, of course, but attrition is a concern. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so in all of the discourse that you've heard about the B-21, what has surprised you that you either have heard, you know, in terms of like some of the discussion around the aircraft, or what has surprised you on the opposite end of what you haven't heard people talking about? Uh, a little bit of surprise on the side of how well the aircraft has been kept, we'll call it under wraps. Right. Uh, I hope that the security, surety, and safety of the program has been uh, kept to its utmost. We know that uh, China is, is notorious for stealing, yep. uh, especially technology. That really troubles me. But I'm confident that this program started on that footnote uh, to begin with. The key is uh, how do you keep these special access programs, uh, you know, clear and away from the hands of, of nefarious actors? That's just, that's very important. It was important to me as the B-2 commander, mm -hmm. just as much as it's going to be important to future commanders and those that execute this aircraft. Right. Right. Yep. No, I agree with you. Uh, we have to be very, very careful in that regard. Um, so the formal training unit will be at um, Ellsworth Air Force Base, I believe. And I think the first operational squadron will stand up there as well. Uh, but then I think it's also going to be stationed at Dias Air Force Base and also uh, at Whiteman, uh, your old base. Um, I suspect that makes sense. Those are the strategic bomber bases of today. Yes. Let me expand on that for you. Please. Uh, first yeah. of all, congratulations to the 28th Bomb Wing and the Ellsworth community because in Rapid City, uh, South Dakota, uh, because bomber bases like at Dias Air Force Base in Abilene, Texas, the 7th Bomb Wing, and of course the Whiteman, the 509th Bomb Wing, and the 5th Bomb Wing up at Minot and Barksdale with the 2nd. If you look at each of those bases, they're all built around infrastructure for heavy aircraft. Uh, munition storage, uh, fuel uh, that, you know, let's face it, you're pumping a lot of fuel to, to keep those aircraft flying. Right. And so the infrastructure of a bomber base needs to be given high regard before you just put a bomber anywhere. But Joe T, let me take it further. Okay. So you base them at those locations, but what's more important, agile combat employment. Yes. I did that to Diego Garcia with four uh, B-2 bombers in preparation for taking Saddam down finally in 2003. And that is important to understand that the infrastructure at home is just as important as the infrastructure when you deploy. Think about the logistics required to be able to get the fuel, the weapons, the logistics. That's important for agile combat employment. I'm really allotting the Air Force for trying to up the game in that arena. I, I agree. Uh, I think agile combat employment is such a 
It's such an important, uh, I guess, approach to, to, to air combat now. Um, and I, I, you know, I think you could probably expand that to any combat, like to be agile and to be unpredictable is what we what we have to be now so yeah i'm i'm looking forward to seeing the b21 put through its paces just as i'm sure you are general and uh i can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with me today this has been a lot of fun and uh i hope that we can have another chat as the b21 kind of goes through its paces and and we can discuss it a little bit more i i promise to share uh, my feelings from tomorrow from tomorrow's rollout but I'm confident you already know, and your audience does too, uh, this is a big day for uh, the Air Force, for our nation, and for Northrop Grumman and its subsidiaries uh, and its subcontractors. They've, they've done a great work, a amount of work to get to this point. So Joe T, thank you for allowing me to go a little bolder here tonight in our conversation. Uh, thank you, General. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you here as a guest. And uh, yep, I am eagerly anticipating tomorrow. And uh, I look forward to an opportunity to speak with you again, sir. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that, my friends, was Major General Doug Rayberg, who is a retired U.S. Air Force stealth bomber pilot and wing commander. If you have any questions for us at Go Bold, please write to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. And we hope you join us for another episode. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.